Now, when I'm very good and do as I am told, I'm Mama's little angel and Papa says I'm good as gold. The stars are ageless. You brought this on yourself. Feud is a Hollywood word, a wildly overused Hollywood word. In her memoir, This and That, Betty Davis starts her chapter on whatever happened to Baby Jane with this declaration that seems to imply that, despite some very bad blood between herself and her co-star Joan Crawford, there was no such thing as a long-standing, decades-brewing feud between them, a conflict that has become one of the dominant narratives around the film they made together and their legacies as movie stars. Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. I'm Anna Bogutska, your podcast host, and in this series of the show, I'll be looking, I'm looking at one of the most controversial and commercial subgenres of horror, an intersection of three of my most favorite things, classic Hollywood, horror films, and movie stars. Over the next couple of weeks, I'm journeying through the genre that has been called at times hagsploitation, psychobitty horror, and grand damn guignol. Before we begin, as I've been doing in this episode, let me credit my sources. I've primarily used Fasten Your Seatbelts, The Passionate Life of Betty Davis by Lawrence J. Quirk, Mother Got Down by Whitney Stein, and written by Whitney Stein and annotated by Davis. Conversations with Joan Crawford by Rory Newquist and Betty and Joan, The Divine Feud by Sean Considine. Throughout this episode, you'll also be hearing from filmmaker and actress Hannah Barlow, who you've heard before in last week's episode, as well as author Carolyn Young, who wrote one of my main sources for this season as a whole, Crazy Old Ladies. Remembering my own relationship with these films, I think I knew about the feud between Betty and Joan before I had even seen Baby Jane. I first watched the film at an art drag night organized by a collective called Amy Grimehouse, legendary, right? In an old grade two listed building in London where they gave away mini bottles of bourbon with Betty Davis's face stickered on. And before and during the screening, the host baby Jade Adams and Joan, John Sizzle, came out decked in Blanche and Jane drag. The screening was loud, rowdy, and perhaps was both the best way to be introduced to the film and its camp legacy, although both at that time and even now, I took baby Jane extremely seriously. Whatever happened to baby Jane? To seek the answer to that question, we will follow a man plotting a murder. Highly specialized work. But Robert Aldridge has considerable experience in such matters. 
He has a dozen successful pictures to his credit. His stars are Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. The scene, an Italianate villa in a once fashionable section of Los Angeles. Its halls, once crowded with the bright, the beautiful, and the celebrated, now echo only to hectic whispers, the insistent call of a buzzer better left unanswered, a telephone that has become an object of fear, a supper tray that will not be touched, a window barred against the world. Last week, I talked about the production and the surrounding press attention around the making of Baby Jane. But the release of it was a huge deal too. It was the first time a new release strategy would go into effect, after Warner Brothers had signed an agreement with the Theatre Owners of America, which meant that Baby Jane would open simultaneously in 400 theatres around the country, instead of first opening in big cities and then slowly spreading throughout the country. To meet the deadline of this arrangement, the film had to be edited and scored in 30 days. And anyone who's ever had to edit or score anything on deadline listening, I too am struggling to imagine this, and I feel for you, Robert Aldrich, 60 years onwards. The poster and the marketing for the film went full out, warning audiences of five things. Number one, if you're long-standing fans of Miss Davis and Miss Crawford, we warn you that this is quite unlike anything that they've ever done. Two, you are urged to see this from the beginning. Three, be prepared for the macabre and the terrifying. Four, we ask you pledge to keep the shocking climax a secret. And five, when the tension begins to build, remember, it's just a movie. The release of Baby Jane coincided with a large demand for horror films from audiences, partly to do with the roaring success of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. The rise of the teenager as a demographic studios could market to, and the popularity of the drive-in as a place to watch movies. And all of these things were great news for an industry that was really struggling to compete with television. Here's Carolyn Young, the author of Crazy Old Ladies, talking about how smartly the film was marketed. Baby Jane was marketed uh, in the same way that Psycho was, in that, you know, you shouldn't tell the ending, don't give away the ending to, to your friends, don't talk about it afterwards, leave it as a big surprise. Um, so I think it was that idea of the shock ending as well, and the twist too, where it turns out that it's really Blanche who's, who's the the evil sister, I suppose. Um, she's the one who's tormented Baby Jane. Um, yeah, the idea of the twist was was quite a new concept too. And it was really from Psycho and, and Baby Jane onwards that people wanted to create this, um, create films that had the surprise ending, the twist that no one would see coming. By the late 50s and the 1960s, drive-ins really grew in popularity. So, um, and they attracted teenagers. So the demographic for these horror films were, were young people and teenagers. And and um, often the, these horror movies are put on double bills in the drive-ins. And so they were marketed in that way as well. The studios were all in, but the press did not have high hopes. The consensus among film critics was that Betty Davis and Joan Crawford had thrown what was left of their careers down the toilet by making a tawdry little horror film. But the previews, both for the public and the critics, were smash. 
and both actresses were booked to do a cross-country tour of events promoting Baby Jane. However, a week before going on the road, Joan mysteriously and with no apology backed out, and Betty was out on her own singing Baby Jane so- singing her Baby Jane song and throwing doll replicas into the crowd. Both of them did the late night talk shows. Re- Both of them appeared on late night talk shows promoting the film, though, reveling in its success and downplaying any rumors of a feud between the two of them. All of those efforts and that marketing paid off because Baby Jane made money, grossing over $9 million and becoming the first hit in years for Davis, Crawford, and Aldrich. The film's distributor, Warner Brothers, as well as the press, was really actively fueling the fire of a feud between the two stars as a way to keep the conversation around Baby Jane going, simultaneously denying and promoting bad blood between them, with headlines on press releases like, and still no feud. Over 50 years later, in 2017, Showrunner Ryan Murphy would make this feud, all its rumors and truths combined into the basis of his limited series Feud, Betty and Joan, with Susan Sarandon playing Betty and Jessica Lange, Joan. As an aside, and I'll get more into Murphy's own contribution to the resurgence of Haxploitation a bit later in the season, it's not a bad show. It's okay. And... You will never hear me say a bad word against Jessica Lange, who probably plays Joan Crawford with a lot more sensitivity than anyone else has before her. And the show is an indulgent fun time for anyone interested in old Hollywood gossip, but it is wildly inaccurate and sort of tame considering how much bile it allows this fictional Betty and this fictional Joan to indulge in. Feud reinforces that the legacy of Baby Jane has been somewhat eclipsed by this hulk of a conflict, kind of downplaying the work that all of them did on the film and fusing them together forever in this spiteful relationship. However, Feud does reinforce this almost magical coming together of creative forces from its two leads to its director, and those inspired decisions like the costuming and makeup that I spoke about in last week's episode. Here's actor and director Hannah Barlow with her thoughts on how the rivalry between the leads was used as marketing. But I think that that whole Oscar snub thing, I think Joan was just securing her spotlight um, because she was snubbed by the Academy um, and she had to keep peddling herself. This, these women had to continue to keep themselves active in the media to secure roles in the studio system. So their rivalry was, I think, just a very genius aspect of their business. No matter how overblown or sensationalized over the years, The feud between Betty and Joan was based on something. They are two documented incidents at least. And the first is what happened at the Oscars. 
As a small aside, uh, let me just point out that horror is not a welcome genre at the Oscars in general. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane got five nominations for costume design, sound, cinematography, supporting actor for Victor Bono, and best actress for Betty Davis. And it is one of the rare horror films that has been so nominated. Only six films in the horror genre have ever been nominated for Best Picture since the beginning of the awards themselves. And horror performances tend to be ignored altogether by the Academy, so it is sort of a big deal for horror film history at large that such a macabre little film got so recognized by the industry, gaining one more nomination than Psycho did two years earlier. The film's success and good reviews for both its leads made Warner Brothers submit both Betty Davis and Joan Crawford for the Best Actress category. But only Betty got nominated. When you play a crazy lady, you always get away with the honors, Joan said years later. But at that time, ever the perfect movie star, publicly, she was thrilled for her co-star. And Betty, Betty was ecstatic. She had already won two Oscars for Dangerous in 1936 and Jezebel in 1939. She had been nominated another eight times and she desperately wanted to be the first actor to win three Academy Awards. And she wasn't shy about sharing this ambition. Spoiler alert, this did not happen. And for the rest of her life, Betty blamed Joan for making sure that she did not get her third Oscar. As soon as the nominations came out that year, Joan made sure that she was booked as a presenter for the awards, and she also called up every other nominee, that's Anne Bancroft, Geraldine Page, Catherine Hepburn, and Lee Remick, offering to pick up their award for them should they win and, for whatever reason, be unable to attend the ceremony. Bancroft and Page agreed. And when the time came, Joan, Betty, and Betty's bestie Olivia de Havilland were standing in the wings, chain-smoking, waiting for the winner of the Best Actress Academy Award to be announced. When Anne Bancroft's name was announced, Joan put out her cigarette, walked onto the stage, and collected someone else's award, but making sure that even, even though she had not won and had not even been nominated, it was her in the pictures and the trades the next day, and not Betty. Betty would never forgive this light, and was convinced that Joan had been campaigning against her the entire time. Here's her in 1987, still furious about it. But afterwards, the, how well, would you characterize the your relationship? Game when she saw it too, and I didn't get the Oscar for Baby Jane. She went to all the New York nominees and said, if you can't get out there, I'll accept your award. And uh, please do not vote for her. She was so jealous. She was a fool, my dear. We had great percentage. If I had won that Oscar, we'd have made a million more dollars on the film. That's what always happens. So she didn't, wasn't very smart about what she did. You hurt by the memory of that? I was furious because that would have made me the first person with three. And as I, you know, I always have to be first as an Aries. Yes, and I should have had it all. Uh, very immodest of me, I should have had it. 
for that year, no question. The second incident came on the heels of the Oscars, with Joan Crawford when Baby Jane was invited to screening competition at the Cannes Film Festival, along with invitations for its director and its two stars. But Joan, who was at first invited, was then disinvited from the festival. A gesture that she did not take lightly and, according to the producers, made her threaten to bring legal action against Robert Aldrich and Betty Davis for besmirching her name. Joan denies that this ever happened and in fact says that she never wanted to go anyway. These two situations were enough to make Betty and Joan positively allergic to one another and they never worked together again. But they did come close once on Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Don't tell anyone what happened in the summer house. I I could Kill you. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Don't tell anyone how sharp the edge of terror can be. Charlotte. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Don't tell anyone what's wrapped in that rug. As we're exploring this season, the critical and commercial success of films like Sunset Boulevard and, crucially, Baby Jane gave a new win to the horror genre, which had found a formula that it was willing to milk for the next decade, as well as giving a new fire to Betty and Joan's career. They both had horror films come out in the following year, Dead Ringer and Stray Jacket, which I'll cover a bit more in depth in a future episode. But Robert Aldrich had wanted to do something entirely different. However, after the box office success of Baby Jane did not parlay into success for his new non-horror film, he set out to play it safe and replicate the formula. Betty Davis plus Joan Crawford times Mad Women equals cash. He approached the author of the Baby Jane story, Henry Farrell, to write an unofficial sequel to the film that had reignited all of their careers. The film, about an aging Southern Belle whose sanity, money and family mansion were threatened by the arrival of a distant cousin, had the working title of Whatever Happened to Cousin Charlotte. This time, Aldrich was after money, not art. He amped up the elements that had worked very well in Baby Jane, the murder, the gothic mansion, the bile. Aldrich wanted to avoid being categorized as a, quote, horror film director, but was aware that the market was anxious for that kind of movie. So, inspired by the story of axe murderers Lizzie Borden and the French thriller Diabolique, he reunited the gang from Baby Jane. Betty, Joan, of course, but also supporting actor Victor Bono, costume designer Norma Koch, and rounded off his cast with with Agnes Moorhead, Joseph Cotton, and Hollywood legend Mary Astor, who would have her last role in this Southern Gothic. The production was tricky, though. Betty demanded as much money as Aldrich was making for producing and directing the film, doubling her salary from Baby Jane, since she had felt cheated by the profit participation from their previous collaboration. The shoot got postponed because Joan wanted to attend Pepsi sales meetings. 
There were quibbles about the order and the size of the two actresses billing on the poster. During rehearsals, Betty questioned every single line of the script for hours and insisted on changing the title from Whatever Happened to Cousin Charlotte to Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Once on set in Baton Rouge in Louisiana, Joan felt isolated from the crew, both physically since her bungalow was a bit out of the way from all of theirs, and psychologically by the more intense partnership that she saw developing between the director and Betty, who was effectively acting like a producer in the movie and not just a cast member. Joan started feeling that her character was playing second fiddle to Betty's and demanded a rewrite to bulk up her scenes, to give her several love interests, and to have a welcome party included in the script that would allow her to wear a very glamorous ball gown. Joan only shot one scene of the film before falling mysteriously ill and checking herself into a hospital, putting the entire production on hold. She had done this before in previous movies, called in sick to yield power over the producers. However, however, her ploy did not work this time. And after several months of delays, the studio had an ultimatum recast Joan Crawford or give up the movie entirely. So Aldrich gave up on Joan and found another actress who had to be approved not just by the studio, but by Betty too. You feeling all right, Charlotte? Somebody has to finish your packing for you, don't they? You don't want to leave all your things behind, do you? Do you? The chosen one was Olivia de Havilland, a legendary actress in her own right who had almost single-handedly toppled the studio system by suing her studio and going freelance. But she was already semi-retired and living a pretty sweet life in Europe. She was also, it should be noted, very good friends with Betty. Olivia had also made a hack horror already, the truly distressing home invasion film Lady in a Cage in 1964, which I'll talk about in a future episode. And she was not a fan of the genre. However, Robert Aldrich, desperate to get someone in and with an ever-diminishing list of names that both the studio and Betty liked, flew all the way over to Switzerland to personally convince Olivia to step into the role that had been written for Joan Crawford, that of Cousin Miriam, the glamorous New York City PR woman who harbors a grudge against her rich, fragile cousin Charlotte. And Olivia agreed, mostly as a favor to Betty. Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte fuses the southern gothic genre with the hag horror that Aldridge had ushered into the mainstream just a few years earlier. The Charlotte of the title, played by Betty, is an aged southern belle who lives alone in the huge antebellum mansion that she inherited from her father. Rumors surround Charlotte, who is said to have murdered her married lover with an axe years ago, taking off his hands and his head. 
For years since that incident, Charlotte has been tormented by the locals, who all believe she was responsible for her lover's death since they found her with bloodstains on her dress. Now, decades on, she is at risk of being evicted from her family home, so she summons her cousin Miriam, a poor relation turned glamorous PR woman. While cousin Miriam is supposedly there to help Charlotte try to keep her house, turns out though, cousin Miriam had other intentions all along. And bear with me, because this gets a bit thorny. Miriam had known for decades that Charlotte had not committed the murder because she had seen the dead man's wife commit the murder and had been blackmailing her for years. And when she comes back into town, she aligns herself with her old local lover, that's Joseph Cotton in the film, to drive Charlotte mad, commit her to a hospital and be in control of her assets. And as they celebrate being so smart and so sneaky and how pathetic Charlotte is, Charlotte overhears them and literally drops a plant pot on their heads, killing them both. At the same time, the dead man's wife, the real murderer, dies and confesses to the police that it wasn't Charlotte at all who did the murder all those years ago. And Charlotte gets to keep her house and is exonerated for a murder, but also gets away with another double murder. The end. Yes, I told you. And I told your father too. Why wouldn't I? After all, I wasn't much more than a child then. And all I ever got in this house was people telling me how lucky I was. And your father always favoring you and holding you up as an example. Why wouldn't I tell him that his pure, darling little girl was having a dirty little affair with a married man? You're a vile, sorry little bitch! How was I to know it would end in murder? Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte is not a bad film, even though I find it a bit much. But it is, by any metric, only half the film that Baby Jane is. And it's kind of because of the unevenness of it all. There's too much plot and not enough character. Some of the same beats are recycled verbatim from Baby Jane, like Charlotte's housekeeper, played by Agnes Moorhead, who suspects cousin Miriam is up to no good and gets killed for her troubles, exactly like the housekeeper in Baby Jane. And as much as I love Betty Davis, the shots linger too long on her, as if letting the audiences relish in the oddness of this character she's playing, but having none of the effect that Baby Jane had. The arrested development of Charlotte is such an obvious remix of Jane's that it doesn't hold the same punch. It misunderstands, I think, what we loved so much about Baby Jane and instead doubles down on more gore, more murder, more Betty. To quote the great actress Mary Astor, who played the basically cameo role of the real murderer from the film, the opening shot described a severed head rolling down the stairs and each page contained more blood and gore and hysterics and cracked mirrors and everybody being awful to everybody else. Without the dueling personalities of two stars, I just don't get why cousin Miriam hates Charlotte so much. It's probably my least favorite of the hag horror genre, not just because no matter how much truth there might be to the way Joan Crawford was ostracized from the production, it makes me sad to think of her power play not working and losing out on a decent role, especially considering the film she'd make after this one. After this one didn't work out. 
especially considering the film she'd make after this one didn't work out. And although I'm into some of the formulaic films that followed, this half-hearted sequel just makes Baby Jane stand out even more. Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte just isn't vitriolic enough to really work. The characters' motivations don't make sense. The partnership between cousin Miriam and her ex-lover, who just happens to be the town doctor, just never really makes sense. Partly because of the inevitable comparison with whatever happened to Baby Jane, the film was pretty much massacred by critics. But it did work for some. It was a box office hit, less so than Baby Jane, given its more inflated budget, but it still made money. And it got nominated for seven Academy Awards, beating Baby Jane by two, and making it the most Oscar-nominated horror film up until that time. After making Baby Jane, getting replaced on Sweet Charlotte, and not getting an Oscar nomination, Joan Crawford made a few other horror films, but she was completely and unequivocally embarrassed about them. She established a sort of partnership with gimmicky horror filmmaker William Castle, making Straightjacket with him, about a woman who loses it after catching her husband in bed with another woman and decapitates both of them. After spending 20 years in a mental institution, she returns to society, but oh no, a new series of beheadings start happening and she is the prime suspect. It's not a great film, but it's an interesting film because Joan Crawford makes it interesting. And I'll talk more about Stray Jacket in a future episode. Joan recalled in an interview, they were all terrible, even the, th- even the few that I thought might be good. I made them because I needed the money or because I was bored or both. I hope they have been exhibited and withdrawn and are never heard from again. If I weren't a Christian scientist and I saw Trog advertised on a marquee across the street, I think I'd contemplate suicide. It's a bit extreme, but again, I didn't have to shoot Trog. While Betty Davis spent the last decade of her life making appearances in late-night talk shows, Joan became a recluse. She was not a fan of the press, recalling that she almost died a dozen times when she was promoting her book, and that the things that she had to do for Baby Jane and Straight Jacket and Trog kept her in a cold sweat. I'm a person made to be seen on film, she said, not in person. And Joan drank. A lot. For years, she was a functioning alcoholic, using liquor, mostly vodka, to calm her nerves before a meeting. But she admitted herself that she crossed the line while she was filming Baby Jane, and that the drinking worked its way into the production schedule. In Roy Newquist's book, Conversations with Joan Crawford, She tells the author that the interviews they did over several years, or rambling chit-chat as she calls them, weren't worth it. That there's a lot that she didn't remember, or didn't want to remember, or didn't want to share. But seriously, she concludes hauntingly, who am I really? And why bother? This why bother really sticks to me. Years later, shortly after her death, Joan Crawford's eldest adopted daughter, Christina Crawford, published a tawdry memoir of growing up with her movie star mother and her alleged abuses, neurosis, and rampant alcoholism. The book, Mommy Dearest, would be turned into a movie, a ridiculous affair where Faye Dunaway plays Joan as a maniacal monster obsessed with cleanliness, wire hangers, and herself. As critic Angelica J. Bastien writes, 
It turned the image of Crawford in the cultural imagination into a monstrous, a soulless camp icon to be mocked and reviled but rarely respected, and a cautionary tale of what happens when a woman puts her career first. That's why the Why Bother really sings. John Crawford was a quintessential movie star for so many years, for so many decades. She transformed herself for the public. She navigated a deeply hostile industry with cunning and smarts. And Whatever Happened to Baby Jane is probably her last great film and her last great performance. So it stings that we might remember her only as the monstrous mother in Christina Crawford's memoir, as an over-the-top performance by another actress, and for the handful of small horror films that she was embarrassed to be associated with. Betty Davis, meanwhile, lapped up the attention and scripts offered to her by the horror world, and after Baby Jane between 1963 and her death in 1989, she made eight genre films, either very dark comedies like The Anniversary or outright horrors like Dead Ringer and The Nanny, when she was too frail to have a leading role, she offered her gravitas as a spooky supporting presence in horror films like Burnt Offerings or fantasy ones like The Watcher in the Woods. And that's what I'll be covering next week. How Betty Davis became the reigning queen of Grand Dame Guignol. Thank you for listening to the Final Ghost podcast and the third episode of our series on hags. Special thanks goes out to Hannah and Caroline for their contributions. I hope you stick around for the rest of the series. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at AnnaBeDemented, and you can dive into our previous seasons where we have covered witches, vampires, female monsters, and teen horror, as well as following the podcast at The Final Ghost UK. 